Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 308, Fool's Gold. Okay then, here's a quick quiz question for you. Where was the first English colony established in North America? I have received some confident answers to that question. Roanoke, sir? Definitely Roanoke. No, no, that's the one that survived. Jamestown, that'll be the one. Well, you could indeed make arguments for these two chickabiddies, but maybe we should instead advance the cause of St John's in Newfoundland claimed for the English crown in 1583 with all the land around that was already a bustling anchorage. Humphrey Gilbert, the rather typical Elizabethan adventurer, making the claim, found Norman, Breton and Portuguese in the harbour at the time. St John's had been used since the early 16th century, since it was such a good natural harbour, and because of the Newfoundland banks, known for their fantastic fishing since before Cabot's time in the late 15th century. Though it has to be said that actual settlement would not start until later after Gilbert's optimistic claim. Anyway, we come back to settlement in the form of Roanoke and to the subject we shall re later return and return next week. But before we get to Roanoke, it's probably worth mentioning that there are a couple of trading and exploration routes that we should also now cover. We've spoken over the last couple of episodes of the Caribbean and the Pacific. We've spoken a while ago of West Africa, but the opportunity that really floated the Elizabethan pinnace was the thought of the Spice Islands and the East. Now, 
There are plenty of ways to skin a cat, or so I'm told. I've never tried. The obvious route around the Cape of Good Hope was blocked by the Portuguese. So the English tried other ways. One of those was the really rather long, hard and tragic story of the so-called North West Passage. The idea was, mooted on charts from around 1536, that just as there was a route to the east, south, around the Cape of Good Hope, so there might be a northern route through what we know now as the Arctic, a passage called the Straits of Anian. Seriously, the folks drawing up those charts with as much verisimilitude as a map of the Middle Earth were, in effect, responsible for a lot of wasted humour, endeavour and death. Because, and turn away now if you don't want to hear this plot spoiler, there is no Northwest Passage, or at least not a practical one. Just a lot of ice. This piece of creative map-making would drive people to their deaths well into the 19th century. In the 16th century, it was the turn of a god's owner, that is to say, an inhabitant of God's own county of Yorkshire. This is another expression I recently picked up from an Australian, thank you, Oz. Martin Frobisher is an exception in the story of Elizabethan exploration in that he did not come from the land of scones and clotted cream, but from the land of Yorkshire pudding with lashings of gravy and beef dripping. Frobisher cut his teeth on privateering in the narrow seas with letters of reprisal from Mary in the war against France and then from Huguenot princes against Catholic French vessels as part of that Protestant seafaring alliance we've talked about before. He was also involved in the Guinea trade, wresting some trade from the claws of the Portuguese. Frobisher comes across as a very typical Elizabethan adventure where the line between honest endeavour and shady dealing is almost impossible to trace. He seems to have been involved in three fake plots, working as a double agent for the English Privy Council to capture Thomas Stukeley, for example, or spring the Earl of Desmond from the Tower of London. But on another occasion, we see him trying to relieve the Huguenot port of La Rochelle, and on another, trying to raid the Barbary coast. And he was not unacquainted, it has to be said, with the insides of both the fleet and the Marshalsea prisons. Really, these Elizabethans, I ask you. In 1574, Frobisher came across one Michael Locke. Locke was a member of the Muscovy Company and Merchant Adventurers. He was the son of a well-known mercer, William Locke and Catherine Cook. Catherine had 19 children, 11 of whom survived. One of those was John Locke, who we've already mentioned as being involved in the Guinea trade, and another was Rose Locke, or Rose Hickman, as she became. Rose Hickman wrote an account of her early life which survives, which gives insights into the lives of a Protestant couple ducking and weaving through the religious changes of Henry VIII, Mary and Elizabeth, and the crises of conscience with which they had to deal. Anyway, Michael Locke and Martin Frobisher cooked up, or maybe cooked up in Martin's case, a scheme to explore the Northwest Passage, find a way to the east, trade like goodens, and make a bundle. Once upon a time, by the way, I remember trying to sell a US series of popular books called the Make a Bundle series. I think one of them might have been Flower Arranging and Make a Bundle. Happy days. Sank like a stone, as I remember. Anyway, that in outline was Frobisher's plan. In 1576, then, two barks and one seven-ton pinnace 
and 34 men set out to seek their fortunes. Seven tons. Golly, you could put that in any decent-sized poacher's pocket. Sadly, said Pinnace sank in storms in the Davis Strait between Greenland and Baffin Island, and one of the two barks decided that this was a mugs game and followed Lindisfarne's advice to run for home. Frobisher battled on and had a run-in with some Inuits, which started friendly, but ended with the death of five English and the abduction of one Inuit. Frobisher's return produced a lot of excitement, especially as Locke reckoned that a black rock he brought back with glinty gold stuff in it was the key to heaven's door, and they were absolutely going to knock on it. Heaven on earth, that is. Gold. Frobisher was therefore funded for two more expeditions in 1577 and 1578, and he brought back three Inuits this time, presumably against their will, and 1,370 tonnes of that black ore. However, Frobisher and Locke's dreams disappeared into dust. This was in fact an iron pyrite, called ironically enough, fool's gold. The Chronicle of Bristol recorded the little-known story of the three Inuits. Their names in this extract are in fact an anglicisation of the Inuit for man, woman and child. 1577. Captain Frobisher, in a ship of our queens, of the burden of 200 tons, came into the King Road from Katai, brought certain ore from thence, which was estimated to be very rich and full of gold. They brought likewise a man called Calico and a woman named Innorth. They were savage people and fed only upon raw flesh. The 9th of October he rolled in a little boat made of skin in the water at the back, where he killed two ducks with a dart, and when he had done, carried his boat through the marsh upon his back. The like he did at the Ware and other places, where many beheld him. He would hit a duck a good distance and not miss. They died here within a month. So much for the movement for the Northwest Passage for the moment. Obviously, the Muscovy Company, which had been established in 1555, was exploring the other northern routes for trade, and despite a reasonably disastrous death of one captain in the northern ice, in 1577 the Muscovy Company was given a monopoly by Elizabeth. The most profitable part of the company turned out to be whaling as much as trade. Part of the trouble was that Muscovy was already reasonably well policed and active anyway by the Nordic and Baltic states, and Muscovy was often disturbed also by war and therefore difficult to trade with. There was another potential route to the east, which was the most thoroughly traditional one, through the Med to Byzantium, Constantinople, the Golden City. This was, however, problematic, since it was, well, Istanbul now, and no longer in the hands of Christian rulers, even of the orthodox religion that Latin Christendom had insisted on considering to be slightly wonky. Nonetheless, one of the interesting wrinkles in the reign of Elizabeth was a surprisingly strong relationship between the most Protestant monarch and the two leading Islamic countries, Barbary, or Morocco, and the big one, the largest empire of them all, the Ottoman Empire. Many of the relationships were started by the intrepid explorations of a member of the Muscovy Company, one Anthony Jenkinson, whose writings survive in Hakloyd's books. Jenkinson explored eastwards to try and open up new trade routes and relationships, and of course, through strange and exotic lands to many English eyes. The English 
was far better known, though, by traders from the Imperial Spain, France, Italy, Eastern Europe and Venice. In the longer run, the task would always be a more political and diplomatic one, a struggle for trading privileges from the Ottoman Empire, as well as a struggle to create trading relationships and networks. But in the course of his travels, Jenkinson began to increase England's knowledge of both the Ottomans and their eastern competitors, the Persian Safavids. In 1553, he recorded his experience of seeing Suleiman the Great passing through Aleppo at the head of his army, marvelling at the sight of the richly dressed army of 88,000, the infantry, all in yellow with hats of the same, of the Tartar fashion, two foot long, with a great robe of the same colour around their foreheads. And then, of course, Suleiman, the great Turk himself, mounted upon a goodly white horse adorned with a cloth of gold, embroidered most richly with the most precious stones. In 1557, Jenkinson was back in Moscow, agreeing the trading arrangements with Ivan IV, and then travelled on eastwards to Kazan and down to Astrakhan by horse, boat and camel, noting on the way the hideous plague and famine that had been caused by Ivan IV's terrible campaigns, before he reached the Caspian Sea. Jenkinson brought back with him a young Tartar girl who became part of Elizabeth's chambers. Whatever her status in England, Aura Sultana had been enslaved in Central Asia, where Jenkinson records, I could have bought many goodly Tartar children if I would have had a thousand for a loaf of bread worth sixpence in England. In 1561, Jenkinson was back again and in 1562 reached this time the court of the Shah of Persia with letters of recommendation from Elizabeth. There he fell prey to diplomacy. The Shah and the Ottomans at that point were patching up a peace, and the Turkish merchants had made the removal of Jenkinson as part of the deal, thinking a new competitor would be bad for business. Jenkinson's work, though, was not entirely in vain. His successor, Arthur Edwards, would win back trading privileges from the Safavid court. Although not quite the Ottoman privilege the English chased, Jenkinson had brought the world of the East much closer to English knowledge. It was the start of a process. In 1578, Francis Walshingham wanted to build on Jenkinson's initial work and aim for the largest prize of all, a trade agreement with the mighty Ottomans. His motivation was twofold. At the moment, any ambitious English traders would have to hook up with a French company and trade under a French flag, with all the corresponding disadvantages in terms of knowledge and trading terms. But the bigger game for Walshingham was to create an anti-Spanish alliance. There's a tendency to see the Spanish victory at the naval battle of Lepanto in 1571 as the end of Ottoman power in the Western Med, but neither Spain nor the Ottomans realised that at the time. Also, Lepanto has been represented as a major event in a sort of Islam versus Christianity war. Well, if that was the case, certainly neither England nor France saw it that way, or at least they saw dynastic concerns as paramount. Walsingham and indeed Elizabeth cared far less about the religious differences than they did about the military dangers from Spain. A man called Harborn spent three long years to build a reputation and get access to the emperor's advisers. The French had coined the phrase by then the sublime port, meaning the entrance designed to the emperor's palace for foreign dignitaries. On the other side of the port, 
lay the complexities of court protocol and the political hurdles of the harem and diwan or council, where lay the sources of political influence and access. When Harborn was successful in getting Emperor Murad's attention, probably also drawn by the idea that Elizabeth was an enemy of his enemy, Spain, Murad rather cleverly fudged the issue of religion, describing Elizabeth as a worshipper of Jesus, trying to create some difference with the Spanish. Murad, however, made it quite clear where real power lay here, that nations throughout the world beat a path to his door begging for trading privileges. In response, Elizabeth would describe Imperial Europe as countries that falsely worship Christ. Harborn's route through the relationships and bribery required to succeed at the port was long and arduous, and the Imperial ambassadors, both German and Spanish, tried very hard to evil-eye Harborn out of existence. But the English did have something going for them, and Ambassador Mendoza's worried reports made that clear. The Turks are also desirous of friendship with the English on account of the tin, as they cannot do without it, while the English make a tremendous profit on the article. Much of this was about warfare in the end. The English, as you know, were rapidly establishing expertise in gun foundry and bell metal was part of the product mix. By May 1580, Harborn and Walsingham's efforts were crowned with diplomatic success with an official trade agreement. The agreement had a number of essential clauses. Included in there were free passage through all territories held or controlled by the Ottomans. Englishmen were not to be taken prisoner or enslaved. English trading colonies would be subject to their own regulations, subject to the authority of the Cardiff's court acting in all fairness. As part of the deal, enslaved Englishmen in Ottoman galleys were now freed. The relationship would be for the long term. Elizabeth soon established a permanent ambassador in Istanbul, and Harborn helped establish a network of consuls through the empire, Cairo, Syria, Algiers, Chios. Walsingham's spy network was thus extended yet further, while the English relationship had the permanent attention critical to its success against the whispering of her competitors. The Ottoman Empire was without doubt the biggest prize in the Islamic world, but not, a, not the only one. Barbary, or Morocco, was another, and driven by similar imperatives. Morocco was locked in a constant struggle with its Christian neighbours, Portugal and Spain, and it looked for allies and was therefore itself a good target in constructing an alliance against Spain. Morocco had been the subject of low-level trade since the 1550s, trading English cloth for sugar, but trade was relatively low because the Pope had told the Christian world not to trade with the infidel. So, when the Pope excommunicated Elizabeth, the raspberry was blown Popewards, and trade rather took off, though Cecil and Elizabeth were initially keen to avoid selling arms to the Islamic world a reluctance blown away as the danger from Spain loomed closer and the trade agreement was reached with the Ottomans. There was a specific need also that Morocco could supply, saltpetre, essential for the production of gunpowder of course, and Walsingham was convinced that England's lack of saltpetre seriously threatened English security. Our Thomas Gresham entered the story here. Gresham had already tried to source a supply from Europe and failed, and then in 1576... Muley Abdul el-Malik deposed the Sultan of Morocco and put out feelers for trading relationships, desperate to source cannonballs for his coming struggle with Portugal. 
here was a chance for trade, Walsingham was interested. The key English agent was a man called Edmund Hogan, who had been with Thomas Gresham since 1547 when he started as an apprentice. Hogan brought back samples of saltpetre that showed their high quality. Cecil, Dudley and Walsingham agreed that using Gresham and Hogan as front men, they could get around their supply problem. The difficulty was that Elizabeth could not know about a trade in arms, cannonballs, other, otherwise she'd ban the trade. At one stage it looks that the game was up, when a Portuguese spy in England caught Hogan arranging supply of the cannonballs. The, the Privy Council hushed it up and the ship sailed at night from the Isle of Wight. The trade went ahead, leaving Gresham alone £2,000 richer. Although the political situation then changed, removing England's ally from power in Morocco, trade with Morocco had powerful advocates at the English court, in particular from Leicester. And in 1585, the Barbary Company was formed in which Leicester's power was paramount. As it happens, the Barbary Company was not a great success, though the sugar trade continued to be its cornerstone. In 1592, after the death of Leicester and the formation of the Levant Company to replace the Turkey Company, the Barbary Company was closed and incorporated into the Levant Company. Nonetheless, interest in Morocco continued to be high, and by 1600, talks were started about an anti-Spanish alliance between England and Morocco. That year, Muhammad al-Al-Nuri made his way to London on an embassy, escaping Spanish and Ottoman clutches. The negotiations were carried out with the Queen at Hampton Court and the Morocco concept was bold, a military alliance not just against Spain but against her colonies. Al-Al-Nuri was quick to tell about the Moroccan invasion of the African Songhai Empire under Al-Mansur. Negotiations dragged on through 1600. In November, Al-Al-Nuri was entertained at a joust, to which thousands of Londoners came brought by the normal chance of some sport, but also to see the exotic visitor from so far away and from such a different culture. John Stowe wrote that, So great an assembly of people as the like hath not been seen in that place before. Al-Nuri had his portrait painted at court, but despite the diplomatic activity, in the end Elizabeth would not countenance a full alliance with an Islamic power, prepared only commit to a Caribbean raid if Morocco was to finance it, which was not attractive enough for Al-Al-Nuri, and early in 1601, the embassy was over. Elizabeth's relationship with the Islamic world is not the best-known aspect of her reign, and for good reason, I guess. It's a bit of a sideshow, but it is significant. It does demonstrate that relationships could and were be built across seemingly deep cultural divides. By the 1590s, Turkey became quite the thing back in Blighty, with the chattering classes fascinated by its culture. Turkey tapestries, cushions and carpets were held in high regard and local imitations were attempted. And of course, characters and situations appeared in theatre and literature. Of this, Othello is probably the most famous example. The agreement of 1580 would be the basis of the relationship with the Levant for the next 300 years and quickly yielded significant dividends. By 1611, goods worth £250,000 per year were exported to the Levant. Nonetheless, it was hard and complicated work and had not yielded the astonishing riches and power of Spain and Portugal's colonial empires. For that, England would need to look elsewhere. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The other option, then, was, of course, North America. And here we must make the reacquaintance of another Elizabethan adventurer, one Humphrey Gilbert, erstwhile Viceroy of Ireland, he of the two lines of skulls. Humph's next thoughts were for virgin lands, and in 1578 he managed to wangle himself a charter from the Queen for exploration. His expedition seems to be famous mainly for the reason that the patent he received would prove to be a model for later patents. Gilbert was authorised by the Queen to discover, search, find out and view such remote heathen and barbarous lands, countries and territories not actually possessed by any Christian prince. Elizabeth thus confirmed her lack of interest in any right the Pope might claim to distribute lands not ruled by a Christian prince and that therefore lands were available for conquest. Explicitly though, Elizabeth was not authorising him to carry war against the Spaniards, and this was probably a moment of great distress to our humph. We strongly suspect that Gilbert had very little interest in anything as hard work as planting and maintaining new colonies in North America, and that his interest in the patent was to get himself across the Atlantic under cover of innocence before he started looting the Spanish and other merchant ships. Elizabeth also instructed him not to spoil or rob by sea or land, or do any act of unjust and unlawful hostility to the subjects of any state then being in perfect league and amity with us. This allowed the Queen to hold her hand up to the Spanish and Portuguese and say, not me, Gov, I wasn't there, didn't do it, when Humph, of course, failed to obey the rules. Meanwhile, Elizabeth specified how Gilbert should establish proper sovereignty in line with her contempt for Philip's claim that a particular country belonged to Spain just on the Pope's say-so, or because his granny had once had a friend who'd had a postcard from there once upon a time. So, Humph should inhabit or remain there to build and fortify, and encounter, repulse, repel and resist all any such persons and persons who shall attempt to inhabit the said countries. It took Humph years to establish a properly supported and funded expedition, but at last, in 1583, he set out from Plymouth. Now, things had begun to change since Drake had returned. The Spanish were much more wary, and the Caribbean was much better defended, so Humph did in fact head for North America instead, and did in fact establish a new colony in what is today St John's Harbour of Newfoundland. He gathered folks around him, claimed the land for the Queen of England, erected a lead notice to that effect, and hey presto, St John's was as English as Wiltshire, or I don't know, lardy cake. It was, sadly for Humph, something of a not-to-be-repeated high point. His flagship, the light, sank in a storm, taking all 80 men with them. Humph was left with two small ships, his native wit and his talent for mindless optimism. 
which optimism was what killed him when clutching a copy of Thomas More's Utopia he refused to transfer to a more robust of his two ships and was last heard declaiming we are as near to heaven by sea as by land which turned out to be quite true though not 100% sure that the destination of his soul was to be the pearly gates his death was a reasonable career move for him, allowing him to be declared the father of English colonisation by proud Victorian historians with a more bullish attitude to colonisation than we have today. There's also something of the traditional English amateur. Gilbert was no seaman, something even Elizabeth realised, remarking that he was of not good hap by sea. But like so many Elizabethan adventurers, Gilbert was not to be discouraged by anything as paltry as lack of expertise and instead observed his motto, quid non, why not? It's one of the reasons maybe why Drake is so outstanding by comparison, as it seems that Drake did, in fact, know exactly what he was doing. OK, this brings us, kicking and screaming, to another very colourful character of English history, one Walter Raleigh, you know, he had the cloak in the puddle. Walter came from a seafaring family in, you guess it, Devon, and they were firm Protestants. He was born in 1554, and somewhere along the line, Raleigh acquired formidable knowledge and learning, partly at least at Oriel College, Oxford. Walter had connections at court. His mother's sister was none other than Cat Ashley, one of Elizabeth's closest confidants since her childhood, and it may be that that was what allowed him to gain a position at court. It just so happens that the Humphrey Gilbert Hutzpah attracted Raleigh an awful lot, and he went with Gilbert on an earlier voyage. Humph also struggled on that one too and turned for home, but Walter kept going for a while into 1579. Now Raleigh was an interesting character, and it's been observed that by and large his later biographers tend to grow to love him, but that to contemporaries he was a difficult and volatile man at best, and not necessarily popular. So again, as almost de rigueur for your Elizabethan man of action, he'd see develop a deal of expertise in the interior design of prisons, as he did after a brawl in 1580. Thence to Ireland, where Raleigh was with Lord Grey of Wilton at the infamous massacre of Smethwick, in which butchery Raleigh was directly involved. The discovery of some secret documents there took him back to court and to the life of a favourite for a while. Raleigh had that irritating flash art quality of panache and adventure, self-confident flashiness, which really doesn't get you anywhere at the Farley Wallop Crown Bowls Association on a Sunday tea time, but did seem to have an impact at the court of Queen Elizabeth. He was tall, about six foot, dark-haired in youth, with pale and refined features. So stories stuck to him, and whether true or not, the one about Raleigh pleasuring an enthusiastic maid of honour against the trunk of a convenient tree doesn't have to be true to tell us something about his reputation. Elizabeth seems to have found him attractive, and between 1581 and 1583 he was something of a hit at court. In 1583, in determined imitation of Gilbert, Raleigh got himself a patent to colonise and put an expedition together led by one Richard Grenville of 600 men and set up a colony on Roanoke Island under one Ralph Lane. You have to think that one of the aims of the colony was to provide a base for privateering in the Spanish Caribbean, as had the French with their Florida colonies, viciously wiped out by the Spanish, by the way. Anyway, Grenville then continued on with a spot of light pirating, as you do. It was tough at the colony, and when Francis Drake swung by in 1586, 
most of the exhausted colonists hung out their thumbs and accepted a lift home, leaving just a handful with Lane. A further relief expedition went out in 1587, but then the Armada crisis intervened, and it was not until 1590 that Raleigh was able to send more help. They found the colony deserted, with the word Croatan on a tree as the only sign of what had happened. Croatan was another island, but there was no sign of them there. So what happened to the Roanoke colony is a bit of a mystery. At which point I should say that I feel slightly guilty about not covering the famous story in more depth. But, as luck would have it, there is a podcast already available by a member of our very own parish, Joel Kendrick, which he produced many moons ago as a guest episode. So for those of you interested, next week I will repost Joel's episode while I put my feet up. Before we leave a rally, though, it might be good to talk about potatoes and tobacco, for it was he that stands accused of introducing them to England, where they would be so very popular. Well, did he or didn't he? Not, probably. The tater appeared in Seville by 1570 and then spread throughout Europe. A herbalist noted, though, in 1597 that the tuber came from Virginia, suggesting that it came from one of Raleigh's other voyages. But the first contemporary mention of Raleigh is not until 1699, so not Raleigh then. It's possible he introduced it into Ireland, though. Tobacco came in even earlier than the Tater, as soon as Columbus got back, basically, and was introduced into Europe by André Tavet in the mid-century was growing in England by 1571 and was being smoked there by 1573. So Raleigh cannot have introduced it to England, but he probably helped to make it fashionable at court and in landed society. The writer Aubrey claimed that Raleigh was the first that brought tobacco into England and into fashion. Maybe into fashion is the key point here rather than the first to introduce it. We are pretty much done with Elizabethan adventurers then, though it's worth maybe finishing off the story of one of the folks we mentioned en passant, Richard Grenville, because he stayed in my 12-year-old mind as the tale of another example of English courage and resilience in the reasonably famous battle of Floris. He used to be very famous, now less so, I think. Anyway, we're in 1591 and the Cold War with Spain is over and we are in a hot war against Spain in the Caribbean and Grenville commands a 500-ton galleon called the Revenge under the overall command of Thomas Howard. Well, by this time, the Spaniards were very much better prepared, as I have said, and on encountering the Spanish fleet, Howard, heavily outnumbered, decided there was no point to stand and fight and took his fleet out of harm's way to fight another day. Not so Grenville. Richard Grenville did not run and fought on surrounded by Spanish ships through the day, taking at least one Spaniard with him and resolutely refusing to surrender, however much his men asked him to. Eventually, the revenge, battered to a pulp, was boarded and subdued, and Grenville was by that time dead. The story has been presented as a stunning bravery and heroism against the odds, and there's a fine picture of it, I think. Alternatively, it was a bit of rather incompetent sailing that allowed Grenville to be caught, followed by extraordinary courage and stubbornness until Grenville was killed and his master could gratefully surrender to save the lives of the remaining men. I know what the 12-year-old would have said about it, of course. Unfortunately, I know what the 56-year-old would probably say too, which is its own tragedy. 
Right, well, that is really very probably it, except we need to come back to that question we raised at the start of three episodes ago, do we not, about what the Elizabethans achieved, if anything, given the lack of any kind of intercontinental empire and all that. Well, the anteroom, I guess would be the root word. Anteroom to the English future to follow. We've seen through the reign a number of companies established. The Levant Company, Muscovy Company, Barbary Company. And in 1600, the most famous or infamous of them all, I speak, of course, of the East India Company. In 1601, John Wheeler, Secretary of the Merchant Adventurers Company, established a treatise arguing in favour of joint stock companies, writing, It is most profitable, both for the prince and the country, to use a governed company and not to permit a promiscuous, struggling and dispersed trade. This is a principle that would lie behind the English approach for some time. Interesting to note that the system that will one day attract the fury of the world for its private enterprise was once seen as a well-organised progression from a state of individualised chaos. Everything is relative, I guess. So what did the Elizabethans achieve? The square is not very much, not much more than a few stories to fill multiple Roy of the Rovers annuals and to trap unwary 12-year-olds into a life of passion for history or something more significant. Well, it's not a story to compete with that of Spain and Portugal. Much of what had been achieved, such as the Africa trade, was lost. Spain was much better prepared to fight off English pirates, corsairs and privateers. But it's not nothing. Quite apart from Drake's circumnavigation, an amazing achievement of courage, seamanship and ambition, much work had been done to add to the sum of Western knowledge about the map of the world we inhabit. That knowledge and experience was available now in the English DNA. The writings of people like John Dee and Richard Hackloyd had given the English a sense of mission and belief, and a basis of legal arguments for the physical empire building and colonisation that would one day follow. They had learned the lesson that royal assistance and partnership was necessary to survive against their European competitors, who were of course well ahead of them in some cases, and soon to be well ahead of them in the case of the Dutch too. The principle of the joint stock enterprise had been firmly established as the way to bring resources and governance to new enterprises without ruining the resources of the state. All of these would have a material impact on the future history not only of England but of the world. And I say that not in a rule Britannia land of hope and glory kind of way before I get the inevitable emails and messages. That's just the way it was. Oakley Doakley, I am sure I've not done it all but I hope I've done enough. Let us go next time to Roanoke and then on to Elizabeth's chamber and ultimately to the chamber of Mary of Scotland. Do not forget the Fabulous Rest is History podcast, which I know you will all love. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening. I love all the comments and so on. Thanks for joining Facebook and the website and super thanks to thy members for letting me live a life I absolutely adore. So see you next time whenever that is.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.